So, let me ask you a question right off the bat. What do you think your greatest strengths as a manager? Why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. Okay. And your strengths? Well, my weaknesses are actually strengths. Oh. Yes. Very good. There you go. Very good. My greatest strength, at least what I thought was my greatest strength, was bringing you these awesome free interviews. My greatest weakness is convincing you why you should become a Patreon member. So it's becoming pretty obvious that this podcast is not having an impact, or the impact, my team and I hoped. We only need eight more of you to help reach our very, very realistic goal of 50 Patreons. And if we don't reach it by the end of July, then I have a special, yet sad announcement to make on episode 138. I've got to share one other thing to you, though. So I'm trying to hire two salespeople right now. And again, you can keep this in or keep this out, but I can't find anybody to even apply. And I talk about the structure and I talk about what they can do and I can talk about the unlimited amount of salary they can do. So here's a tip for all entrepreneurs out there. If you want to start a business, start with... I've always believed in the theory of you make a living from nine to five, but you can make a life from five to nine. And I think it was New Year's Eve. She was telling me about how we're not going to be able to make it. And I said, you're probably right. And so I'm probably going to have to let you go. Gosh, <laughs> did she start crying there? She was very upset, uh, needless to say, at me. And because I didn't take her advice and we would never be in this situation if you would have done all the things and not reinvested all this money. And Was she right? The truth is, probably. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, she, she was. <laughs> She's got a good reason. If you would have just listened to me. If you just would have listened to me, we wouldn't be in this point. My name is Jim Kalb. So I'm 57 years old in El Cajon, California which is just a suburb of San Diego. I actually live in San Diego and work out here in El Cajon. I've been an entrepreneur now for about 30 years, and it's been a great road. I've really appreciated it for what it gives me, and it's great. OptiFuse is one of three companies that I've started. They're all under the umbrella of Triad Components Group, and OptiFuse is probably the most successful out of the three, but we can get into that a little bit later when we kind of go through the chronology of how I started which companies and, and such. Although Vortex Technologies, which is the first company I started. So you started back that in about 93, but can you give us a little bit more about what OptiFuse is? I don't know if they're all similar or related, but at least give us a general idea of what your company does and how you make money. Sure. OptiFuse is a manufacturer of overcurrent protection devices that includes fuses and circuit breakers. Now, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. We don't make Teslas or something like that, SpaceX or something really cool. We make kind of like making springs or you know nuts and bolts or something like Pencils. that. Pencils. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not an exciting thing, but it's very lucrative. The market is described as best as a duopoly. Think of Everetti and Duracell in batteries. And now name me the third guy. I didn't even know there's one other than Duracell. So. <laughs> well, Everetti, and that's the you know Energizer and such. Okay, Energizer. I know Energizer. 
Okay, so those are the two, and then and then you got to name the third guy, and we're the third guy. Okay, nice. In our industry, there's these two massively large companies, and so we operate in their shadows and feed off some of their crumbs. But it's been a great, exciting road, and we're changing the way they do business because they're looking over their shoulder at us all the time. Those are your actual two competitors, or were you just giving an example with batteries? Oh, no, those are two examples. The two competitors, first one is called Busman, Bus Fuses. Sometimes you see them in the little yellow packages in the Walmart and such. And the second one is a little fuses, which is a public company that's based out of Chicago. Busman's based out of St. Louis and is a division of Eaton Corporation. Eaton Corporation is about $26 billion and Little Fuse is about $2 billion. You're about $30 billion? <laughs> I'm kidding. You yeah. said you're the third one, the smaller one. But yeah, tell us about the size of yours. Last year, we did approximately $8 million in revenues. This year, probably a little bit closer to about 10. We've been growing since 2009 at a clip of around 25% every year. Uh, last year was a little bit greater than that, but we're on actually uh, on par this year which is kind of really scary. After four months, we're up about 60% from this time last year. So the growth is actually kind of scary. Yeah, why is it scary? It's scary because I've seen more businesses go out of business because they grew too fast and it disrupts the culture of a business. We feel like we might have to hire quicker than we want to. It also can run out of money, can run out of cash, trying to support that. And we have some great vendors for our some of our products and that give us some great terms, but there's only a certain amount of limits that they'll extend our credit. And then at that point, got to start coming up with more cash. And so by the time we actually make the stuff, ship the stuff, and then get it to our customers and then give them 30 to 60 days worth of credit, our bills are due. And we do this without any bank financing at all. We don't have any investors. We've been operating off of a bootstrap from day one in uh, 1991. You make money today by doing what? We have contract manufacturers over in the Far East specifically in Taiwan, that make our product for us. And then we have approximately 12,000 SKUs that we sell. You couldn't believe there's that many fuses and circuit breakers, right? Yeah, I know. That's ridiculous. I've talked to people who have like 100 SKUs and they say that's hard. Yeah, just on the OpiFuse side, we have about 12,000 SKUs, of which we inventory probably about 7,500 pieces today. So we purchase these products that are made for us by several different factories, 14 different factories over in the Far East, except mostly Taiwan. We have one in the mainland. But after that, it's like 13 in Taiwan and then manufacture to our specifications and they send us the product and we put on our shelves. And then we have customers out there. Our customers are typically distributors and dealers that sell our product to their customers who could be the wire harness guys for Harley Davidson. So eventually maybe one of our products go into that Harley hog that somebody else is doing. We're just part of the supply chain. And that chain could be six or seven or eight different companies long by the time it actually gets in the hands of the consumer. The majority of your buyers of people who are buying fuses from you are those automotive dealerships? Like what's the majority of your customers? Where are they coming from? About 80% of our business is in the transportation industry, but not the major guys. We don't really sell to, to Ford or to Chrysler or to GM or to Toyota. We're mostly selling to the guys that are building uh, 200 horse trailers or some guys that are building uh, RVs or the guys that are building uh, golf carts. We also have a lot of customers that are put on accessory items. So for instance, maybe on the back of that flatbed truck, you'll see a lift gate. We're selling our circuit breakers to the guy that's building that lift gate that gets attached to that truck or the guys that are building the wheelchair ramps for buses or something to that effect. They're still really what we call low voltage. So the run from a battery, like on a vehicle, not something you plug into the wall. About 20 to 25% of our business comes from things you do plug in the wall. And that's the electronics business. But the majority of what we do is going into the transportation industry. So a lot of our parts are found in all kinds of different things. It could be the guy who built the Zambonis. We have another guy who makes floor scrubbers. 
with some sort of battery power. So they're in there at night. The janitors use these floor scrubbers and power wheelchairs. We've had some products going to these power wheelchairs. There's a really good chance that somebody has one of our products in one of their products, but you would never know because inside their little black box. It sounds like, yeah, more of your stuff's more like specialized automotive or specialized kind of things versus, like you said, the ordinary car, if you will. And you said you bootstrap this thing. Are you 100% owner? No, actually, I'm 80% owner. It's a kind of a family-owned business where it was kind of degenerated into a family-owned business. I had some investors at one time, friends and family, that helped to start the OptiFuse side. By the way, although Vortex started in 1991, the actual OptiFuse side didn't start the year 2000. So it was nine years already we were in business before we actually even started the OptiFuse side of our business. Yeah, because I don't want to confuse everyone on like the different businesses if they're very similar. I guess we can talk about it if it's easy to talk about the differences in them. Because I know you said there's one basic company and then you kind of have three smaller companies, if you will, underneath it. That's right. There's one umbrella company. We only have one corporation. And that corporation has basically three arms and Opifuse is being one of them. And, but again, that's $8 million of our $9 million. I think that if we just stick to that, that's probably going to be easiest for everyone listening to understand it. Why don't we go ahead and reel it back to how you got started with this thing. I would never think about starting something like this. Like, how do you even get involved in starting OptiFuse? Or even if you want to take it back further than that, then that's fine. Sure, let's take it back a little bit further than that. The story comes back a little bit further than just, hey, I want to start a business someday. Ultimately, what happened was I came out of San Diego State University with an electrical engineering background and went to work for a company here in San Diego that was involved with the UPSs, you know, the battery backup systems for computers. And I was involved with their international sales department. And so they sent me all over the world as a 23-year-old. So I went to go probably to about 80 different countries around the world. And mind you, this was in the mid-80s. Right. Yeah. It's expensive to fly there and too. And yeah, did you enjoy that? I enjoyed it for about two years. Yeah. It seems like it'd be some fun for maybe even six months to a year. <laughs> they get tired. Yeah. And because I would be gone for a month at a time, they would send me over because it was expensive to get over there. So I would go to Africa and I go to the Middle East. I was in East Europe before the wall came down, which really great experience. You know, most people when they graduate college, they go backpacking in Europe and I got to stay at the Hilton. It was kind of cool about all that kind of stuff, but that's kind of where I also got a chance to meet people overseas and some of the things that they had going on over there, especially in the Far East with the manufacturing base that was just kind of exploding over there. I left that job and I went to go work for one of those two big guys that we were talking about. I went to go work for Bus Fuses in 1987 and spent a couple of years with them. Big corporate world and a lot of corporate environment and I didn't really get along very well. I was a really bad employee, truth be told. I was just a really, really bad employee and walked around like a diva all the time because I was pretty successful in sales. And they had a hundred other salespeople, literally a hundred other salespeople. And I was number one or number two every year I was with them as far as growth goes. And I didn't feel like they were really compensating me at all. So one day I was visiting one of my customers and this was Sony Corporation. They make television sets here in San Diego or in Tijuana right across the border here. And the gentleman there said, hey, why are you even here to see me? You get 100% of my business. Why are you wasting my time? If you really want to help me out, you can help me find this switch. And so I was able to use some of the contacts I had from the previous job. And so I was able to reach out to them in the Far East and find Sony a switch. And I ended up selling Sony these, which I didn't feel or I justified that really wasn't uh, taking away from what I was doing at Bus Fuses. So here's a tip for all entrepreneurs out there. If you want to start a business, start with already a customer in your back pocket and also start by having another job potentially and maybe moonlighting. I've always believed in the theory of you make a living from nine to five, but you can make a life from five to nine and really taking the extra time 
to start your business on a shoestring and make all those kind of mistakes you possibly can before you scale up and get big and before you hire your first employee and before you rent out office space. I know there's a lot of people who do this and do their business from their kitchen table. And, and I think that's a really good idea in some cases to really kind of get yourself, because you might, why put on all this investment into something that might never work? And my goal was to make enough money to go on vacation every year to make like ten or $12,000. The stress of running a new business guided founder Yuna Kim to her next idea, a mindfulness app called Simple Habit. The Simple Habit app offers quick audio meditation so that busy people like you can squeeze a little tranquility into their day. We're talking about short meditations that can be consumed in less than five minutes. The Simple Habit app offers hundreds of meditations for free. It's a practical app that offers all those meditations with help on the specific problems of your life, like getting nervous before a big meeting at work or the stress of producing an awesome podcast episode like this one. The Simple Habit app is ranked number one in the meditation category of Apple and Android stores. The app also has 65,000 five-star reviews. So to find out how the Simple Habit app can help you too, then go to simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. Again, the app is free for you to use, but if you want the premium features, which unlocks thousands of additional meditations, then use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. The first 50 listeners to sign up using this link will get a 30% discount on the premium version. So one last time for that special offer, use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. We all have that friend who's the first one to try things. Whether they're super trendy or more of a guinea pig, when you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear it from someone who's been there and done that. Choosing the right software for your business is no different. Read thousands of real software reviews to help you choose the right software for your business on captera.com slash millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 850,000 reviews of products from real software users. Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software. Everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E. R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. From your side business that you're talking about, from finding these switches for Sony? Yeah, exactly. And first year, we ended up doing about $60,000 in business on these switches. And then pretty soon, the switches turned into another guy who wanted power cords, some other guys who wanted another type of switch. And so after year number two, while I'm still working, we're doing about a quarter million dollars in business. I had a partner at the time knew nothing about the business, but he knew a little bit about business and he had a real estate office. And so I was able to take a couple of cubicles in his real estate office eventually and hire someone to answer some phones for us. That's how it kind of all got started. So it was strictly bootstrapped from there. And what year was it? This was in 91. This is still like when you're finding these switches, even for Sony or whatever, 
Can you go on the internet to find these? Are you calling these people, asking them how to get them? Like, that's the only thing that's confusing to me. There was no internet. Right. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, not one that you could easily search, right? So this was me calling contacts I knew actually in the Far East from my previous employment. Remember, I had gone and visited a lot of those distributors and manufacturers over in the Far East trying to sell that other product to. So when I called over there and said, hey, can you help me get me in touch with a switch company? Well, most of the communications, because of the time difference, were done either by phone or by fax. So I could fax them over a drawing of what I'm looking for, and then they can come back to me with, you know, with some samples. They'll What's a fax? <laughs> I'm kidding. Exactly. <laughs> That's how long ago. Because I mean, I don't overlook is how difficult this must have been. Like even with the fuses, at least with the faxes, honestly, I'm really wondering how you know exactly what part, because it doesn't sound like you can just say a part number. You're actually making sure. And I guess the only way to do that was confirm it through a fax where they, maybe they sent you the diagram or something to make sure that was the right fuse or right switch. That's correct. And a lot of that was also DHL document services and things like that. It's amazing. When I first started in the international side, we didn't even have faxes. Faxes weren't invented until about 1987 or so. We had telex machines, which are nothing more than electronic typewriters. That's how long I've been kind of doing it, before cell phones and really almost before credit cards. Right. Were international calls super expensive or no? They were, but again, it was one of those things. It was thousands of dollars, and you know that's part of what we did. Right. Okay, so you find these switches, and the side business seems like it's doing obviously way better than you thought because you only wanted like 12000 you were thinking, and then you got up to 60000 in year one. Uh, year one, quarter million in year two. Finally, my partner says, you got to figure out which side of the train you want to jump to. <laughs> They're going apart. You know, Jump to one train or the other. And so I ended up saying, all right. I cut my salary about 50% and jumped to my own company. So in 93, I left corporate world and it's kind of been, that's the ride ever since. So you mean your corporate world, you're making twice as much money. How much were you making? And then what was your pay cut to? At the time I was making about $65,000 a year. And then I cut my pay to $30,000. But what I had at the corporate world too, I had health benefits and I had a car allowance and I had all those other things as well. You could travel everywhere. For that case, once I was in the fuse company, I wasn't really traveling. It was a localized. I was talking about the company before you could travel on their budget. Oh, yeah, of stuff, course. Right? Exactly. Yeah, you're losing all those quote unquote benefits. I mean, gotten old traveling everywhere, but at least you got to do it and stay in the Hilton, like you're saying, versus now you're going to take a pay cut because you're starting your own company and you want to keep as much money as you can in the business. Is that the idea? That's correct. The other big thing I found out was I didn't know squat about accounting. I was an engineer and a salesperson. It was amazing. So we hired a, after a couple of years, our books were in disarray. I didn't understand the idea of between balance sheet items and P&L stuff. I said, hey, we're making money. Where's all this cash? I had no idea about what cash flow was. It didn't occur to me at all. And I couldn't figure it out. So I hired an accountant who then proceeded to rip me off by about $30,000. Jeez. Dang. I mean, you wouldn't expect that from an accountant. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. And he had a interesting way to do it too. So I'll give you guys a tip that you and any future entrepreneurs want to do. First thing about for cash control is make sure all the statements come to you unopened. If you still get statements through the mail, if you get them electronically, then you can look at them anytime. And then second of all, one person signs paychecks. So what he would do is he would come to me at the end of the month and I would sign a paycheck and then he would create another paycheck for him and then give it to my partner on the first of the month and then say, I need to get paid for this as well. So we found out we were double paying him every month because he would just create two paychecks for himself and have two people sign it. And that's basically year two of the company because year one, you were still uh, working. Year three. Year three. Okay. So you hire this accountant and what year is it? 94. Okay. So 94, you and your partner doing this. And this is kind of unbelievable. I imagine you'd have to get in trouble being an accountant doing that, right? As it turns out, the way we found him, it turns out he was doing a lot worse things than stealing money from us. He had wire fraud. He was ordering computers online from some computer vendor, laptops, and then having them delivered to 
an empty warehouse. And while this truck was at this empty warehouse, he had a Confederate go in there and basically take the laptops out of the back of the truck and stealing these laptops out. And they came back and the laptops were gone. Did he go to jail or anything? I don't know. The FBI was after him in 94. So that's how you don't want to run a business, everyone who's listening right now too, right? So now we know. That's correct. He was a bad dude. And- <laughs> Sounds like it. That sounds like your biggest hurdle of starting off because it sounds like year one, year two, things went well. Then year three, you want to get your books in order and then the CPA or accountant starts screwing you. What really happened was in year three, our business grew from a quarter million dollars to $600,000. And then year four to basically 1.1 million and then 1.8 million. And it just continued to grow. By the end of the decade, 99, we were about $4 million company. We were just rolling in the money and things were really good. It kind of almost reminds me of what's going on now for the last 10 years from 2009 up to 19. Let's face it, the economy has just been booming for most people. And then remember, they also had the, I don't know if you remember this year, I think you might be too young, but the Y2K scare. I still remember where I was. I was in the back of a truck and my dad was driving. I'm like waiting for all the lights to go off and everything. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I don't think anything happened though. Nothing did happen, but a lot of people had upgraded a lot of their phone systems and their computer systems. And so business for us was just great until it didn't happen. And then people had overbought uh, for all their needs. And so there was this great depression in electronics in 2000, 2001, 2002. Wow. I haven't heard that. The Great Depression. I could see that easily though. It makes sense, right? And then of course, then you had the dot-coms blow up as well okay. right around that same time. And so they weren't buying servers and they weren't buying switch routers. There was a lot of those guys that went out of business, not necessarily the software guys, but guys that were making all the hardware. And remember, my parts go into hardware. It doesn't really go into software. So yeah, you jumped to that part. I mean, it's good to see that growth that even that time that everything worked out pretty well, at least those first seven or eight years. But I mean, even over the first couple of years, were there any other growing pains other than the accountant screwing you? One of those cases that you don't know what you don't know. And I thought my partner was going to lend a lot of expertise to that, but he was pretty much hands off. I think he really envisioned he was just going to be an investor and his wife was kind of be my partner on along. She was an actress up in Hollywood who he had married and came down and needed a job now that they had started a young family. So now you had two people that didn't know much about business trying to lead each other. So I was just out there selling, selling, selling. And she was back in the office trying to purchase and make ends meet and all that kind of stuff as far as paying our vendors and such. And it was pretty ugly. Tell us how that went. That's what I was going to ask. What was she doing? Like just calling to the Far East trying to get more parts or what? No, most of that was done at night because remember, they don't start work until five o'clock West Coast time. So that was done by me in the evening times for the most part and sending faxes and orders over to them. What she was doing was really just kind of managing the office. We had about, I think at the time, three customer service people who were on the phones and taking orders from our customers and scheduling those parts as they needed them to come in the door. She was making sure we have enough inventory to fulfill those parts and then help us to order new parts from our factories because there's a lead time, maybe eight weeks before we can actually get new replenishment of those parts. What led to all that growth here in the beginning? I guess one of the good things is you're on a wave of technology, right? So people are, you're riding that way, but it seems like there had to be some other things leading to all this growth. There actually was. I alluded to a little bit before that. Remember, San Diego has this great proximity to Mexico. During the 1990s, that's when the whole growth of the maquiador industry the whole idea about the twin plants. So a lot of these American companies started by going down to Mexico, places with people like uh, Mattel and Panasonic and Sony and Sanyo. They decided to manufacture there in order to basically take finished goods and bring them back into the United States. And so as they were growing, so were we and growing really fast as they were putting new plants in there and they just needed parts and we were right there to help them out. We had Spanish speaking people who would help them to communicate better, 
And we knew a lot of people from that industry. As they continued to move around, they would introduce us to the new company that they were at. So it was a lot of networking, and that's what helped us to do it. Plus, we had a pretty good sales staff. Sales, like I said, drives everything, in, in my opinion. It was a lot of training these salespeople to go out there and bring in new sales. And it was all about sales, sales, sales. It really wasn't about profitability, which is another hard lesson we learned. I like that you keep emphasizing the sales. And it sounds like we're about to jump into maybe talking about profitability as well. Yeah, I think I cut off too about the partner. So what happened with Dissolve That Partnership with the woman and the other guy? Well, here's the interesting thing. After a couple of years, I realized he wasn't really doing much and she was really trying to raise a family. So I wanted to go and buy them out. He and I funded this whole company with $1,000 each just to pay the lawyers so they can actually work the, the company. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. The truth be told, he I hired the accountant, so he didn't take any blame for that one. So ultimately, they had a situation where him and his wife were having some hard times and he owned 50% of the company and I owned 50% of the company. And then his wife basically, in order to, who was going to be assumed to be his ex-wife, decided she was going to sell me her shares and he saw the writing on the wall. So he just sold me the rest of the shares as well. At least that worked out and made it amicable, right? Yeah, exactly. Then I, all of a sudden I had 100% of the business and this really worked out well. And so I, I had 100% of the business and it was making money. And by the way, I had raised my salary probably a couple of times by the mid 90s. So I'm back to where I was before. So I wasn't trying to live on an SOS shoestring budget because like I said, we were doing three or $4 million a year, at least get myself to where I was before. Yeah. So did you have any family or relationships at this time? Yeah, I was married and I was married with two children at the time and trying to balance the idea of starting this fledgling company with trying to you know, have two young children at home. My wife, who's now my former wife, was a full-time mom. So that was great to be able to do that. And I think our kids were really appreciative of her being home all the time as well. She never worked in the business at all. Well, it sounds like life was going pretty well then after you got also your 100% partner, like you're, you own the whole company, sales keep going up, you own this business. Didn't it seem like everything's going well, at least a few years into it? Everything was just cranking about 2000. So in 2000, things were going so well and we were selling tons of fuses, by the way. Because once I left that busman fuses, they said, hey, look, at would you start selling our fuses through your distribution company? And because you know where all the bones are buried. And so about 50% of our business was sales from my former company. You mind if I stop you there? Because I think it's important that people realize too, by not burning a bridge or something from leaving the old company, I mean, that works out perfectly, right? Well, yes and no. I had people who loved me there and I had people who hated me there. And the reason I say this is because that segues into the next story. Okay, cool. Through the 1990s, because I was really successful at Busman and really grew sales quite a bit. And so I had a lot of friends there who saw, you know, it was kind of hard charging and saw that as something good. But I also called out a lot of people who were just living or not really performing at all. And I used to call those guys out all the time. And I did. I was a really bad employee. And so I would call out my peers and talk about how they're not working hard enough and so on and so forth. By the 1990s, a lot of the A players had left that company, like myself, by the end of that. And they were replaced by those B and C players that were coming up through the ranks who I thought were worthless. And so by the time 2000 came around, those same guys that I used to call out were now in charge of the castle. In 1998, I was their distributor of the year. And then by 2000, I had another meeting with one of their sales managers and who said, basically, we're cutting you off. You can't buy from us anymore. We're reorganizing everything, the sales force. You can no longer sell our products. And they just basically stole about $2 million of the revenue off my table. That part hurts. And now I see why you're saying that yes and no with the old company. Exactly. So yeah, I burned a lot of bridges. But at the same time, I kept a lot of real strong relationships going. In fact, people I still talk to today. 
Was there anything else major that happened? I know you said 2000, like you said, everything's still rolling pretty well other than this issue. What else happened? So the other big thing I was telling about was the dot-com blow up. So that all kind of blew up at the same time. And then the third thing in this perfect storm that came through was the fact that the Makiadors were out, China is in. So people were pulling up stakes in Tijuana and in Mexicali here in California, then moving their facilities back to China or over to China to do their manufacturing. And so a lot of the companies that I had just basically closed their doors. Uh, Mattel left and Panasonic left and a lot of other these companies that I was working with just left. And in some cases left me holding the bag. They left me for $60,000 in one particular case. Just didn't pay the bill and just left. And I had inventory for them, which was even worse in some cases. So it was pretty ugly. So with bus leaving, busman fuses leaving me and all the other guys leaving at the same time, we were kind of in a little depression in the electronics industry. I did something, I guess, stupid at the time. You know, I'm still living high on the hog. It's the end of the 1990s and I had a lot of success. So I said, well, I don't need you. I'm just going to start my own fuse company. Screw you. And so OppiFuse was born and I sat down and wrote a business plan to create my own fuse company in this. And so I did and I wanted to get it funded. So I went out and I wrote a business plan and I went to all the VCs around town and the angels and such. And people just laughed at me. They said, yeah, you could probably be pretty successful and such. But remember, we're funding dot coms at this time in 2000. We want a million time return on our money. We give you a thousand dollars. We want to get a million dollars back or $10 million back or something. And I said, well, this is not going to be a grand slam like that. This is going to be a single to left, you know, where scores are run. It's going to be something where it's going to be very profitable, a lot of margin in this business. You should should think about joining me. And they just, like I said, wouldn't give me the time of day. So I went the friends and family route and there was about 20 or so people that gave me, I raised about $250,000 in order to start this fuse company. Probably about a year into it when I realized I probably needed about $3 million to start this business. And so effectively I was bankrupt after about a year in the business. And ultimately what I ended up doing was merging the two, the distribution company and the fuse company together and trying to find a way to do this. Also, since I had been relatively profitable, banks were wanted to lend me a lot of money. And so I went and borrowed about a half a million dollars to keep the doors open, thinking that, hey, it's just a short amount of time till we come back. Vortex will be going great. And OpiFuse is just getting off the ground. It'll only be like two years till that's a multi-million dollar business. And so I didn't have any problem borrowing the money. And as it turns out, the business did not come back for most of the 2000s. So before you were, quote unquote, a distribution company, right? And it was called Vortex Technologies. That's what you're saying. And then when you're talking about this OptiFuse, at the time you're buying fuses from your old company, which was called Busman Fuses. But because they said they can't do that anymore, you're like, okay, I'll start my own side business called OptiFuse make my own fuses and then sell it underneath Vortex Technologies. Is that the idea? Exactly. As well as to other distributors across the United States. Right. Yeah. Like Vortex. Yeah. Expanding what you were doing. Instead of just being the distribution guy, you're also going to have your own products that you can sell through your own distribution company and through other ones. Correct. Okay. And that was the idea. I want to create my own brand and compete with Busman and Little Fuse out there and say, you know, they only have two choices right now. They only have those two guys in this duopoly. So they're going to just come beating down my door because they don't like those guys. Let me give you an analogy here, how this all works, because I think it's best to do this. Assume that you own a little bodega, a little grocery store on the corner, and you buy Coke and Pepsi today. And Coke and Pepsi for your customers, and Coke and Pepsi sell to you through their local distributor or bottler, and you're doing great. And then all of a sudden, Coke and Pepsi come to you and say, we're not going to sell to you anymore. We want you to buy all your product from 
Walmart or from Costco or whomever, and we're no longer going to support you any longer. And I walk in the door and I say, hey, how would you like to have a new soda called OptiSoda or OptiCola or whatever it is? You would think I was under the false impression that they would just love to see me because they wanted to buy something directly from the manufacturer. And that was not a bad decision, but a bad hypothesis from me, a bad theory. Reality is they just said, no, we sell these sodas for a buck and a half a can. It doesn't matter to us. We'll go buy 12 packs from the local grocery store and just stock. That's not what people are buying is low price from us. People are buying convenience. And so I didn't realize how strong those guys' brands were when I first started OptiFuse. And so it took us 10 years to break through a $1 million barrier through OptiFuse. I would have thought the same thing as you. And I think it's a good analogy because can you even go back to it? Because I still don't know if I totally understand why, if you're Opti Soda versus Coke and Pepsi, like why they still want you in there. I mean, can you explain that a little bit more? When you go into your local bodega as a customer, do you want to buy Coke and Pepsi or do you want to buy Opti Cola? You don't know Opti Cola, so you're not going to buy it. You're going to buy Coke or Pepsi. It's not a price play for the bodegas. They need to have that in the store for their customers. And so remember, I'm selling to distributors. And so the distributors have their customers that they have. When a customer calls up, I'll use a couple of real life examples. Let's say Harley Davidson calls up a company called Bisco, which is one of our distributors. So they call up Bisco and say, I want to buy a Busman part. And Bisco says, hey, I got this other part on the shelf for you. How would you like to have this one instead? I can save you a couple of pennies on this thing as well and, and save you some money and it's already here. And they say, nah, I'll just buy what I'm looking for. Right. So they said, we're not interested in trying anybody else out. And we're really too busy. We have no time for you whatsoever to even approve the new product. Just give us what we're looking for. So I way underestimated the power of their brand going into this thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people might make that mistake, but then it also makes sense from the Harley Davidson perspective. If we're talking about a fuse and your one fuse is the one thing that screws up the motorcycle, right? Right. Then I can understand, no, it's not worth a little bit in savings if we know that these other fuses work because it's tested, right? Exactly. And that's the exact same situation. And frankly, they were overworked and didn't have enough time and really didn't have any incentive really to look for another brand and to go there. They say, hey, I already got two products that work. Why do I need a third? And so it was a real hard sell for the distributor to make to their customers that they should try this. The distributors loved us. And I'll get into that, why they like us better. In fact, I'll segue into that right now. Okay. One of the things we had to do when we started our new brand, OptiFuse, was differentiate ourselves from Busman and Littlefuse. So what could we possibly do? Here's the guys that had a hundred year head start on us. So what is it we can do? So we came up with really eight differentiating ways to help the distributors out. Remember, I was still a distributor. I still owned Vortex. I knew what the pain points were for a distributor. So I could go to them and say, hey, look at, I know where your pain points are at. Let me see if I can help with getting over some of those pain points. So for instance, we had no minimum orders. Our distributor wanted to buy four parts from us. We'll sell them four parts. Whereas our competition says, well, they come in bags of a hundred. You got to buy a hundred. So we had no minimum orders. We had no minimum stocking requirements. So if someone wanted to become a distributor of Busman or Little Fuse, they had to put in $25,000 worth of inventory, whether or not it sold or not. And then one of the biggest things that we offered to our distributor base was the fact that we took no customers direct. So a big customer, let's just say Harley Davidson, might not want to buy from a distributor and have to pay a little bit more from one of the local distributors. They might want to buy directly from Busman or Little Fuse. And they would do that. For a large enough customer and a large enough order, they would just go bypass the distributor altogether 
together and just start selling to the end user. And so this poor distributor would do all the work. They would do all the specification work. They would get their stuff approved and then get cut out of the deal once that really kind of went into production. And that distributor thought they had a big sale pending after doing all this work. And one of those dustmen or little fuse will just go around them and then just take that business. And so we, part of our pledge was to the distributor saying, we don't take any direct sales and we still don't do it today. We have no direct business whatsoever with any customer. We walked away from business that could have been profitable to us, but we work strictly through distributors because they trust us that way. Well, because you were a distributor too, so you know how it feels. And that makes a lot of sense. I think now people can start understanding like, okay, there's a lot of different industries that I've talked to and I could relate to this even specifically as far as someone going around you and getting the job done versus they have to go through you. And then also you're saying with OptiFuse, you're kind of protecting them. I mean, when you were doing between OptiFuse and Vortex Technologies, obviously as a distributor, you kind of understood their pain. Did you ever think of just like stopping OptiFuse at this point? I mean, because it took this long amount, I guess you said 10 years to get to a million dollars in sales and ever think about just going back to just the distribution? Because it almost seems like too much of a headache versus all the success as a distributor early on. I mean, that's a great question. And the answer is, it didn't really matter. I think we were taking down Vortex along with the OptiFuse. The ship was going to go down with both companies unless we got ourselves together and really got our act together. Well, especially because I guess you ended up getting a loan and kind of bringing the companies together. So they either had to both float together or both go down together? That's correct. Okay. And in fact, we actually were bankrupt twice almost. The first time we had a very fortunate thing happen. So in 2004, my brother and I, we ended up executing we had moved our business into a building and we wouldn't go into the building without them giving us a purchase option to buy the building. So ultimately what happened was we had a year time frame window to actually execute and actually buy the building. And by the end of that year, it was already appreciated by about 25% that building. So we executed, we borrowed a lot more money. We executed the option and we actually bought the building. Two years later, it was worth a hundred times more than we had purchased it for. And so we had purchased it for like $1.2 million and ended up selling it two years later from the actual execution of the purchase for about $2.4 million. And so we had a nice $1.2 million windfall. Half of that belonged to my brother and half of it belonged to me. And so I took that money that I had gotten and just rolled it right back into the business. It's obvious. Yeah. You don't care about all this extra money you make. You always keep throwing it back in here like fire, right? Pretty much. <laughs> you like burning money. Okay. Well, what I like doing is I believed in what we were doing. That's obvious. If you follow the money, that's obviously true, right? It got us out of the hole and had a small mound. But three years later, we were right back in the situation. We we're still burning cash. And then an interesting thing happened in 2008 and 2009. And that is the economy kind of tanked, the global financial crisis. And all of a sudden, these engineers at these companies were sitting around trying to justify their jobs because they didn't have anything to do. They weren't making really new products and they were just kind of supporting the products that they currently had. So a lot of these companies then were looking for things to do. And one of those things was, hey, maybe we can start qualifying some other components for our projects. And that's exactly what started happening. And all of a sudden, now these engineers who could qualify our products as a third source at these companies started doing so. And then, of course, people were starting to look at the pennies now for these products. And all of a sudden, they said, oh, you're a lot less expensive than those guys as well. The engineers like you and your pricing's great. Let's just buy you. And ultimately, that's kind of started our little hockey stick growth here. Well, that's good. I mean, so all these technology companies, again, you're saying these engineers don't have anything to do. So they're like, they need to figure out ways to at least make everything cost a little bit less in the company. So they're looking at fuses and whatever, and they're in their 
calling you and seeing that you're cheaper and then going to you for the business? Let me just stop you one quick thing here. We don't do anything cheap. We just do things less expensive. Less expensive. Sorry. That's okay. If you ask anyone here at my office, that's my biggest pet peeve. Sounds like it. <laughs> I can tell. It's absolutely my biggest pet peeve. We don't do anything cheap. Right. We just things that are less expensive. Okay. So yes, that's ultimately what happened. And more and more of these companies started giving us a specification. And so we started selling more and more product to these companies. And then because we could have started getting ourselves out of debt. And some of those loans we took out in 2000, 2001 were also then satisfied through the SBA about 2010, 2011. And now all of a sudden I didn't have that albatross around my neck trying to debt service those loans. They were gone as well. And then another really interesting thing happened around that same time. I took a class from somebody here just like a local chamber of commerce type of a class that was talking about creating blogs and newsletters. And I ended up liking that idea. And so I started sending out a, first of all, it was a daily newsletter and then it turned out to be a weekly newsletter, but it really started connecting with people. And the truth be told, it had that the blog had nothing to do with fuses or circuit breakers. It was all about life and just really interesting things about technology. And it just started connecting with people to a point where I would go out and visit with customers and they would say, oh, you're the guy who writes that blog. I send it to everybody I no. I said, that's great. You know, I really appreciate that. So it started making a name for itself to, these are the guys that were sending out this blog that went out every Friday morning. I had some customers, some distributors say, yeah, we actually bring lunch in on Friday and we discuss your blog around our conference table at lunchtime. Well, how many people were going out? Was this going out to? About 4,000. And it was just a thousand word essay, basically about something. A business or life or both? It was about things like, what's the difference between love and trust? And why is trust so much more important than love? Now, this is a guy who sells fuses talking <laughs> yeah, about yeah. love and trust. Yeah. Talking about why sales is really the oldest profession in the world. And it's not prostitution, it's sales. And it was when Eve sold Adam on me taking a bite of that apple. And why Girl Scouts make great salespeople and selling their cookies. And what's the difference between painting and sculpting? One of them, you keep adding more and more things. And sculpting, you take things away and what you're left with. And that maybe led into a discussion about 3D printing or something about money exchange that led into something about Bitcoin or something else or electric vehicles or something else I thought was just really kind of cool and interesting. And people like that. Or how much does it really cost to have a meeting when you start going around the room and determining how many people are there and what's their hourly rate? And did you really get that kind of ROI out of that meeting? Things like that. Well, is it good stuff? I mean, were you just in the shower thinking these things up? Like, how do you even come up with these type of things to send out every Friday? One, I'm an avid reader. I read a book every three weeks and there's always great topics. And then I read other people's blogs as well. But a lot of times just sitting in the shower or sometimes I go to a conference and I get all kinds of stuff. And I had a notebook. I had a physical notebook at one time. Then I just went to my iPhone and just, you know, on the notes pad and just had blog ideas. And it was just usually a sentence or two that I built the whole blog around that one idea. So interesting. I mean, even maybe not purposely, but this seemed like it actually helped you grow your name, at least for some of these people and expanding your company, right? I talked to zero about fuses. And I would think that they really appreciated that too. This wasn't a sales letter. This was really just more of a branding thing that I thought was really kind of cool. And it really took off, but it really kind of took a toll on me because I did start after about 500 of these things. I just couldn't come up with any more ideas on it, but it really, really helped put us on the map to be able to go out there and differentiate ourselves in front of the eyes of our customers. Yeah. Well, I bet even so you don't do it anymore right now, right? No, I'm kind of on a two-year sabbatical. Well, I mean, honestly, dude, I just think you could have 500 of your best ones and keep recycling them. Go back to the very first one and send them out again again, where it's no more work to you. Because it's stuff that is obviously could still relate now, just like a lot of these podcast interviews, like even 10 years from now, maybe the same technologies won't be the same, but the same type of things can apply, right? The things that we're talking about. I mean, what do you think about that? What I'm actually thinking about doing is probably crafting a book that talks a little bit a lot about my philosophical 
views on business and then intersperse them with some of these blogs. And then after that, I'll probably go right back onto the blog because I've continued to write down ideas about new ideas that I find and I keep adding them to my notepad. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like you said, you remember a good amount of these stories and stuff, but even though they're five years old or whatever, I just think you could put them in a loop. 500 in a row, I don't think you'll even have the same subscribers. If you kept it on a loop, I think if it got that much traction and just interest, I think you could have someone easily just go out and put automatic emails to do it every Friday to do that. Yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. And I think I might. Because it's good stuff that you brought up because I haven't even thought about some of the stuff that even the things you're saying. And I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty interesting, you know? Yeah. And it's something like I saw the movie, I was on a plane and I saw the movie Bull Durham the other day. And here the protagonist, Crash Davis, is talking the difference between hitting 300 and hitting 250. And it's that this that, that one extra hit a week that allows you to then, you know, either be an all-star or be an average Joe. That one extra hit could be that one extra sale that someone makes at the end of the day or that one phone call. Whatever it happens to be, it's just one more. It's that one mile more that that person could run or, or walk or whatever it happens to be. One more time getting to the gym each week. That's a whole block. But it's based on that one idea that I happen to see from the movie that I can spin this into something really kind of cool. So yeah, so this seemed like a cool kind of side project again that was helping you somewhat with business, but more just kind of interesting to me. So what year was this? Do we want to jump back into the chronological story and like get to the ending? Sure. So this is in July. So I had started in April of 2009. And in July, I had gotten a bicycle wreck. I was cycling that day and I ended up in a ditch with a couple of broken ribs and a shattered clavicle and ended up in the hospital. And at the same time, it was probably the low of the company. It was ready to close the company down. And when I got back out of the hospital, I called everyone around and said, please get your resumes together. I'll give you guys a great reference letters, but I don't think we're going to make it. I'm going to probably just end up selling off whatever inventory we have and we'll all be looking for new work by the end of the month. So the troops kind of rallied. There was only five of us at the time and we had shrunk from like 20 down to five. And they said, hey, look, at we know where we're at. If we were to just cut our salaries 30% and we were able to reduce our rent and do a few other things like this, we think we can get through. We can get our nut down to a point where we can save $10,000 a month. And that's all we need. Our landlord, who was also in the global financial crisis and there's lots and lots of places for rent, he agreed to cutting our rent in half and everyone took a little salary decrease and we ended up staying in business through 2009 and made money in 2010 and 11, 12, 13 and every year since. But that was definitely the low point. Have you ever booked a rental car and wondered if it was the lowest rate possible for that rental car company and date? Did you wonder if the person in line next to you at Avis or Hertz was getting a better deal? Rental car prices change constantly, and you want to make sure you're always getting the best deal. And the company that'll help you do that is Autoslash.com. The magic of Autoslash is that they apply every single coupon code available to you at your booking. They can even apply codes that you qualify for based on memberships like Costco, AAA, BJ's, and more. So by using Autoslash, you're getting the best rate right off the bat. And I can tell you that I used Autoslash for my car rental just recently in Baltimore. I saved $59 by booking through Autoslash.com instead of going directly through the Hertz Rent-A-Car website. And again, it was for the exact same booking. But wait, there's one more thing about Autoslash that's mind-blowing. It's their special rate tracker, which you can use by going to autoslash.com forward slash track. Once you put your booking details in, they'll continuously scan and alert you if they find a better rate. The team at Autoslash says most customers get at least one slash in their original rate, and they've even found slashes for hundreds of dollars for some last minute deals. So to support the show and save a bunch of money on your next car rental, be sure to use autoslash.com. One more time, to save money on your next car rental, go to autoslash.com. 
Yeah. So the main part of all this was really, you're just saying the global technology has gone down because the great recession, if you will, there's nothing else. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I could see that how it could honestly, like technology wise, no one upgrading stuff. Everyone stopped buying extra things that might need fuses, right? You don't have that extra income to go buy an extra trailer or something where your fuses might be in there. Correct. And they weren't designing new things per se. They were just trying to cost reduce what they currently had. Right. Exactly. Because they weren't getting enough for it. So it's something a trailer might have cost somebody $2,000. Now they only want to pay 1500 So how does a manufacturer take $500 of cost out of their trailer? Makes sense. So you're able to get through this and you said you went from 20 to five people. Was that difficult? Sounds like you had to lay off 15 people if I'm doing the math right. Yeah. And there was attrition over the course of time. Some of them were really tough, really, really tough. What was the hardest? The hardest was a gal who took over our accounting and, and I got her right out of school and she was with us for about 10 years. And I think it was New Year's Eve. She was telling me about how we're not going to be able to make it. And I said, you're probably right. And so I'm probably going to have to let you go. Gosh, <laughs> and then what she said, did she start crying there? No, she was very upset, uh, needless to say, at me and because I didn't take her advice and we would never be in this situation if you would have done all the things and not reinvested all this money and better cut these beforehand. Was she right? The truth is, probably. <laughs> yeah, I know. And she, she was. <laughs> She's got a good reason. If you would have just listened to me. If you just would have listened to me, we wouldn't be in this point. But she was also commuting. She had moved away because uh, of her future husband had a job somewhere else. So she was actually commuting about two hours a couple of times a week and then working telecommuting the rest of the time. And she was just miserable coming into the office and such. Additionally, we said, look at, and she brought up a really good point. She was like, well, who else do you have doing the books? Do you have my replacement already? And I'm like, no. And she was like, you don't know how to do it. <laughs> right. That's what I was thinking too. We actually came up with an amenable relationship there. So she actually was coming in on a weekend, which didn't have any traffic to come in and just do the bare basics of our books on Saturdays. And she was doing it. And then I don't think it was two weeks later, she actually had a better job, maybe five miles from her house. So she didn't have to commute at all anymore. And she was making more money there than she was making with us. And she was still coming in on Saturdays and doing that stuff for about six months. It was like the best thing in the world for her in retrospect. So I just wanted to say I don't feel too guilty. It really kind of set her much better path. And sometimes it's just like the employee needs that push where she's just being miserable driving that much and not realizing it, maybe even necessarily. And then things happen for a reason, right? So at least also that transition period had to be gold for you. I mean, if she was just coming in on Saturdays versus like she said, when you fired her, basically, who else do you have doing it? And you got nobody else. You're kind of screwed. You got to find your first bookkeeper right there versus actually taking your time to find hopefully a good hire. Well, by that time, I actually had an MBA and I could do it, but I just didn't want to do it. Right. Yeah. Who wants to? I don't know. But I knew accounting pretty well by that point in time. I could have done it. And then I trained some other people in our office because we didn't replace it for a couple of years. She worked with us about six months and then we ended up doing it internally, split it up amongst several of us. And then the other really hard one was, uh, how do I let my brother go? So he was our sales manager at the time and we couldn't afford him anymore. So I tried to hook him up with another job with a friend of mine that worked for a couple of months and he was unemployed again. And he was living off them all that money we made on that building. Right. Oh, still? Okay. I didn't even think about that because he made a good amount of money from that. So... He didn't put his money back into the business. I put my Right. Just you. <laughs> just you. <laughs> exactly. He bought a nice house in California probably with it, right? Yeah. Well, he paid off his house for sure. Okay. Yeah, for sure. But he actually had a nice little two-year sabbatical. There's a silver lining on this and the fact that two years later, we could afford to bring him back. And so we ended up bringing him back. 
or about 2011, 2012 in the story. Exactly. It seems like the hardest part was all those, but I guess you still kind of stayed lean. Like you're saying, it's important that you do that. Even in the very beginning, you kind of talked about this. It's like if you would have went and bought a warehouse that was way bigger for expansion and stuff, you would have been had to close your doors, right? Exactly. We really learned about lean all through the 2000s. Because really, in the 1990s, we were just minting money. And then pretty much through the entire second decade of our business was, what do they call it? A 10-year trip to the dentist. It was just excruciating pain. Which is funny too, even to think like the 90s or whatever. Yeah, you think you're the man, you know the shit, like you know everything about business. And then in the next 10 years, you're probably like, oh, you weren't expecting that, right? Well, it cost me a marriage and, you know, there was just a lot of things that were really, really bad personally on that time as well. So was it because you were working too much? Working too much, a lot of stress and I wasn't at home. And even if I was at home, I wasn't really present. And there was other things too. You know, my former wife never really bought into this whole idea of entrepreneurship. I was an engineer and I'm working for a big company and things. And that was with a regular paycheck and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what she bought into. So do you have any advice for anyone to deal with personal time and everything like that? Because again, those are some things that get overlooked from time to time. The personal advice would be to anybody who's looking to, I have a mentee right now who's an entrepreneur and she's looking to get married. And we talked about it about two weeks ago and for about three or four hours on a hike. To you? She talked talk to me about it. What advice can you give me? About Is she looking to get married to you? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm married. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> she's awesome. And over at San Diego State, they've got a great entrepreneur program over there, but she's getting married to to a really neat guy. And I said, well, the only advice I can give you about marriage, and again, I'm not an expert in this, but is that to recognize that throughout the life of your marriage, you guys are going to change. And if people can change with you, you kind of can change together and communicate that, then everything's going to be honky-dory. If one person changes in one direction, the other person changes in the other direction, it's not going to be pretty. And so that's pretty much what I said. So unfortunately, my former wife wasn't able to adapt into this new life. And I kind of forced her into that life because I'm the one who decided to become an entrepreneur. She didn't really decide that. Well, I think it's good advice, though. It's like, it makes a lot of sense. People are going to change over time. And maybe if she's not able to get on the bandwagon, then... And obviously the divorce is going to happen. But if she would have, then you probably would have still been together. I guess, yeah, I think that was good advice and expectations for anyone who's listening is, okay, if you're not an entrepreneur yet and you're about to get into it, really understanding everything that's involved in the stress level and making sure you're open with whoever you're at with, like what's it going to be like? Maybe you don't know 100% yet, but you can expect that you're going to be working more, right? And that probably less time to personally to spend with them versus if you have that nine to five when you can come home and stop thinking about work. Right. I would come home, stop work about six, come home have dinner, put the kids to bed and such, maybe eight, nine o'clock, and then go back to the office and work till one or two, come back the next day, you know, just, but again, it just takes all your energy out. It makes sense. And if you can plan even those date nights, even if it's not once a week, but once every two weeks where no matter what, you've got to have that meeting or go to the dinner or do something special with your significant other, or else if it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen. And then business is just going to keep running into your personal life. Exactly. Fortunately, I don't know, it was about two years after I was divorced, I met another great gal who also had a family and such. But She's actually a CPA and a CFO for another company. And so when I come home with business, she loves talking to me about the business because she's embroiled with the business all day long. It's actually great to have a partner who really kind of gets the whole thing. Yeah, no, that definitely is good. I mean, do you tell her about the first accountant you hired? <laughs> I did. She knows about the one I had a fire and thought she was there when I had to fire her. As it turns out, you know, the other thing, I guess I have clear in my own mind when I was telling the story, this happened in about 2005 
when I let that the other accountant go on, on New Year's, but I was already with my current wife at the time. So I was already married to a CPA, so I could always go back to her and get some help if I needed to. Yeah, it's good to have those backup plans. If we're scooting forward, where do you want to jump to as far as kind of ending your story and what else we can learn over the last eight or nine years of really good growth, it seems like? Let me just kind of jump forward a little bit further. So now we're in 2015 and I'm out there selling and my brother's out there selling and we kind of divided the country up and, and supporting all these distributors and such. And we realized that we couldn't do this. And so we need to hire another salesperson to help us out here. And so we went to San Diego State on-campus interviews because I spent a lot of time over there and I knew the campus really well. I know a lot of the professors there and such. And so we went to on-campus interviews and we ended up with three really great candidates to hire. And then we developed a training program and such and couldn't decide on which one to hire out of this. And so we ultimately ended up hiring all three of them. And so we more than we went from two people to five people overnight. And that's pretty much has been the difference and the difference maker. We're now up to seven people. And now that we can afford it, we're, again, we're still plowing profits back into this. But that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the kind of growth we're seeing now is because of all that investment we made into those salespeople back in 2015. So you actually went down all the way to two people because at one point in the story, you said you just went down to five. You went down no, all no, the way to salespeople. Oh, it's salespeople. Okay, gotcha. I'm sorry, because we had somebody in the warehouse and we had an operations person and such. So I'm sorry. It makes sense. I was making sure we're clear on the numbers. Yeah. When we hired back my brother, Jason, that took us to six people. And he and I were really just on a plane all the time, going out and visiting our distributors and their end customers and working with them and training them and giving them the kind of support that they need. But we were just really not growing it much. It wasn't enough time. We were really just too busy focused on what we currently had to really grow. And then that's kind of when we stepped back and said, look, it, we, we need some help here. And we worked out a strategy to be able to hire all three of those those really great salespeople. And again, they've been the difference makers. Are they on commission? They are. One of the reasons why we hire students is because we pay a relatively low starting salary, $45,000 a year, and they get a commission of the gross profit. But here's the interesting thing. One gal who's our best salesperson, she started, and again, that 2015, she probably made $45,000, maybe it's a little bit of commission the first year. But this year coming forward, she'll probably make $350,000 with us. I was going to wonder about your commission structure because if anyone wanted to set them up with that, I think, yeah, it's smart to have a low base salary as low as you can go. I actually even had lower when I was in a sales role. Okay. It was a different industry though. So that's what I'm wondering. Like, how do you set up if we wanted to hire a salesperson? What's a good rule of thumb or anything as far as keeping them motivated? Because it sounds like, yeah, you made some good hires and they saw the long-term perspective of what they could make in it. Maybe she didn't even think she could make this much, but how do you just set up the commission structure when you're hiring new salespeople? Well, the structure is the same for every single person. So the new people that we're trying to hire. Sorry, I'm about to cut off because yeah. at my old company, it was bullshit because the older guys got a higher commission structure. Even though I was younger, I would do more sales and I got paid less. And I'm like, why doesn't everyone have the exact same structure? But you know, I think that's very smart. It's, as a salesperson, it's annoying as hell. Like people have different structures. I think they should all be the same. It's just, I guess, yeah, curious on how you have it set up for at least fuses so we could learn from it. Okay, you can edit this part out. But remember when I was telling you I was a really, really bad employee with Busman? The reason why I was a bad employee is because I was on that same structure that you're talking about. I was the first guy in the door. I was getting a much lower salary, $65,000, where other guys were paid $100,000. And I was doing them four times over. And that's the reason why I was calling those guys out all the time. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I was in the commercial real estate field. And I'm like, just because they're older, why did they get a higher base salary and more percentage? Like, we should all be on the same structure, you know? <laughs> 
Well, that one there was 100% salary. Yeah. So I didn't even have a chance, even with my sales, to even to have a chance to get better than them. It was this corporate world that I just despised. Right. So when I actually started this company, one of the things I also did, which is really, really important, in my opinion, with any good salesperson, we actually had a bogey because we were already doing some business in their particular territories. Territory might consist of like a quarter of the United States or a fifth of the United States. So seven or eight states, maybe. And the distributors do most of the work. The salespeople are there to really go out and support the distributors in their given territory. By the way, you didn't ask the question, but we have about 450 distributor locations across the United States. So they each have about 80 apiece and they go out and visit those. So one of the things that what we do is we basically set up a bogey when they first joined us of what the sales territory was doing at that particular time. And we pay them on gross profit, not on sales. Just that way they're kind of tied to how much they sell, if they're making a profit on that product or not. So we pay them gross profit. And what we end up doing was setting up these bogeys and saying that your bogey will never change from the day you walk in the door. So it's not like, oh, you did a million dollars this year. You had a million dollar bogey. You did $2 million. So next year, your new bogey is $2 million. We don't change the goalposts at all. They just stay the same, and which is, I think is great. One of the stories I tell is we look at our business or any business uh, in per se as a farm. And so in any farm you have, you know, basically your carrots, your potatoes, tomatoes, and you have your orchard. And the nice thing about it is if you go out there and you try to start a brand new sales business, you're starting this brand new farm, you're a pioneer that's just landed in Nebraska somewhere and you want to start this farm. If you want to eat, you're going to have to plant some carrots because you put a seed in the ground, you comes out and you're eating something in four weeks. At the same time, maybe you're going to plant some tomato bushes and you put one seed in the ground, but you get 30 tomatoes on that plant by the end of the season. You can eat a couple of tomatoes every day for a month. And then you plant an apple tree and you comes out the first year and it's, I don't know, it's 12 inches off the ground. And there ain't no apples on that tree. Second year, you tend it and take care of it. It's now four feet high and you got a couple of little cherry apples on there. And by the third, fourth, fifth, sixth year, now you got this full tree and you get one bushel, then you get six bushels, then you get 10 bushels of apples off of this. And so immediately when they first started going out, they were looking at just finding carrots. And we try to force them into basically planting apple trees and doing the stuff it takes in order to build these long-term relationships and really kind of growing their orchard. So it produces year after year after year after year. And that's kind of what they figured out. And the gal has done a little bit better than the other two originally. They're doing okay too, don't get me wrong, but she's got really wired and got it all figured out. So did they make more money than you? Yes. Yeah, it's funny because on one of our interviews, logistics company, it was episode 100, actually, where she was just saying, it's like the salespeople make more money than me. You know, it's like funny thinking about that is like, maybe at first you wouldn't have thought that, but I mean, obviously you have the equity in the company and whatnot, yes. but it had to be understanding like, because that you're not like, oh, I need to get rid of these salespeople because they're making too much money and you're not hiring their standard where they can't make that much money, right? Because they deserve to make that much money if they're making that much profit for you, you know? At the end of the day, they get between them and the salesman and we've got a couple of other compensations, a team bonus and such, but really I keep 80% of the gross profit and they get 20% of the gross profit. Right, exactly. So it's, it's good that you don't get greedy that way because I think that's what happens with some business owners. And then talking about sales and my commission structure, I think that's what would happen is the guy who owned the company is just, okay, we are salespeople, but you keep not necessarily raising our standard, but you keep giving me a lower commission rate. Why would I want to keep working here? So it's important that anyone who's thinking like that, if you got someone making more money than you in the company, that's okay. It's actually a good thing. You should be happy. Well, back to the apple trees real quickly. That's what this podcast is. You don't, you're not probably making the kind of money you want to make today, but you're growing an apple tree. The first year, you and I were talking about, you know, it's like you had 5,000 people or 400 hits or whatever the number was. And soon enough, you'll be 3 million and you'll be 30 million. You know, the sky's the limit. And pretty soon you'll be doing keynote speeches for, you know, $75,000 a piece somewhere. 
I'll have you up there. I just asked the questions. I let you do all the hard work. So I appreciate that. No, even the people listening, at least they're growing through their knowledge by learning your story, right? So I think it's important. I think that we're all in the same boat here, making sense that, yeah, putting in this time here, eventually you got to put in the time to get the results that you want. And I guess even your commission people have seen that. I've got to share one other thing to you though. So I'm trying to hire two salespeople right now. And again, you can keep this in or keep this out, but I can't find anybody to even apply. And I talk about the structure and I talk about what they can do. And I can talk about the unlimited amount of salary they can do. I can't, I sent it out. I posted this at about a hundred different colleges throughout the United States. And I got maybe 40 resumes. It was amazing. We got like 10 resumes from one college, Clemson. I'll call those guys out. We got 10 resumes from Clemson and Jason flew out there to interview them on like on a Thursday. He had already talked to them on Monday. He was ghosted on nine of the 10 interviews. So when the economy goes bad is when you're going to get a shit ton. Cause that's exactly when I came out of college, like the economy was bad. And I'm like, I honestly, I wasn't looking to try to make a high salary. I worked hundred percent commission, but I'm like, I realized that it was worth actually doing that. Cause I was going to get in the real estate field that I wanted to get into. Why don't you plug right now? If anyone's listening, who's younger and I guess even near the San Diego area, uh, why no. don't you t- not, not even we're looking for someone right now in the Southeast and we're looking for someone in Eastern Canada. Okay. Well tell them right now what your email is so they could send you maybe their resume and a good plug. Cause I mean, we even talked about the potential of what you can make in your company and learn from you obviously. So without us even bringing this up. So why don't you tell me your email so they could send it to you. Sure. It's uh, jimk, J-I-M-K at optifuse.com. Okay. So hopefully at least you get, well, obviously it's going to be a smart person because they're listening to this podcast who's going to email you, right? Of course. Hopefully that helps you. And then LinkedIn.com. Did you ever try that or no? The job post? We've done that too. But the problem is the salary base is not large enough to attract somebody from somewhere else. Yeah. People having to understand that you have to put in the work to get to there. So I think be easier. But again, if the economy is kind of doing well, like it is now, it's like, okay, well, once it starts going lower again, people are going to be willing to take those commission jobs. But again, hopefully someone listening right now will at least send you an email and say thank you for doing the interview, but also for maybe this potential job post. Well, that's great. Thank you. Let me just go through just one or two more things here, if you don't mind. So here's our big news. And this also goes to the idea of recruiting. And that is, I realized about 2018, I can't do this forever. I'm 57 years old. So I started looking at what my exit plan is going to be for the business. And there's really four different ways you can do it. One, before I actually created a plan, my exit plan was a gurney where they would just take me out when I die with my, you know, until they take my mouse out of my cold, dead hands. And that probably wasn't going to work out really well. At least my wife doesn't think that would have worked out really well. And then second of all, you can try to sell it to some sort of private equity type of company. It's strictly a financial deal, five times you know, EBITDA or something like that. You might be able to find a, uh, a strategic person like Busman, a little fuse, just want to get rid of me and they might pay me a little bit more. But we actually went with the fourth choice and that is, I've agreed, I've said, it up. So now I'm selling it to the employees. And starting in 2019, we became an ESOP company. And so within about 10 to 15 years, the employees will own 100% of the company and they don't put any money in, they just get it. Another incentive to email you about the job opportunity. And the way things are going right now, that one little benefit, if you're with us for 15 or 20 years, could be worth a couple million bucks to you, the way we're going right now. But that's been a really interesting thing because what's also forced us to do is really teach financial literacy to everyone in the company. And so we've all been operating open book management for a while. And then that's been a really good thing. So now everyone knows where we make money and how we make money and, and what cash flow is. And now we try to work in a lean environment all the time. And, and every time I want to hire somebody here, I get other people saying, we can do that. 
that work. We don't need to hire anybody. Because <laughs> now they look at the financials and realize that they don't want to give up more ownership, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. And they, they know that there's a multiplier on our valuation. So like for every dollar we can bring the bottom line, that's like $6 in valuation. And they, uh, so, oh, my stock can be worth more. We have to hire someone for 50,000 bucks. That's like $300,000 of valuation. I, I don't want to do that. Right. Now everyone's working 24 hours, right? Well, not quite. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and they're not coming in on weekends. We really work, strive really hard for uh, work-life balance here now. Uh, it was kind of like the sins of the 2000s. And so I don't put in more than 40 hours a week, if that. And I don't think anybody else here does either. Some weeks I might do 50 if I'm traveling a lot or something. But Right. Well, and it's good that you got that perspective. I think, again, anyone who's listening wants to get to that point where you have to put in the hours in the beginning, right, to get to where you are. But streaking that balance where, hey, you're happy and you don't have to put work as much as you, you can work as much or as little as you want. That's kind of the idea of owning your own business. And so was there one or two more things you wanted to touch on before we close the interview? Just a couple of other things, too. We also believe a lot here and something, a book I read several years ago called Small Giants. And it's kind of like the Jim Collins books, Good to Great and Built to Last and such, but it was done for smaller private companies. And we've actually kind of adopted a lot of those principles here. And that really has given us a roadmap to a lot of the success that we have, not really the ESOP, but things like servant leadership. So I wouldn't expect anyone here to do anything that I wouldn't do myself or just the company culture or relationships and just kind of fostering these relationships and making sure I go out to lunch with the employees here and there and or hold AMA, ask me anything type sessions here. And then also really working a lot back into the community and giving back a lot of, of stuff. I've talked about San Diego State several times, but we raise money for the Arthritis Foundation here. I go on a big bicycle ride from San Francisco to San Diego every year. Last year, we raised about $10,000 there but via the company and, and other things. And working with things like local organizations like Elder Help. So we give people time off to go visit the elderly and, and go help them to buy groceries and things like that here as well. So we've really kind of created this community at Hughes. It's, it's really just not a money-making machine. It's, it's really kind of this extended family. I feel like we're really part of our community here. And I've been talking about money and creating money and all that. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs, that's what keeps us going is the profits and, and cash flow there is a purpose, there is a higher purpose. And we are a mission-based company that is really out there to better our community and within our community and ourselves here at the company and have strong relationships with our vendors and customers and really kind of foster all that. And speaking about profits, I mean, are you personally, or I guess the business putting away some money for the next you know, downturn in the economy? I'm not saying anything's going to happen right again, like tomorrow or overnight, but maybe learning from those lessons in the past where you had to make so many cuts and stuff. Are you preparing for any of that? Yes and no. I just, to know if you're learning from that, if, hey, maybe we should keep more money in our bank account just in case we go through this or what, you know, just thinking of the future for your company. We're not stressing about money today at all. Just on our $8 million, we made about $600,000 net before taxes. This year, we'll probably do 10 million and we'll probably end up with about a million and a half dollars EBITDA. So it's going really well. So you can buy your warehouse again? Yeah, if I wanted, I, 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 but I don't want it. Actually, I have no interest in, in actually uh, buying a place because uh, we don't know how quickly we're going to expand. Right. No, understood. Because you are a real estate entrepreneur now too, obviously, right? <laughs> That's right. I probably made more money in real estate. It sounds like it. <laughs> prior to the last few years right. than I did in the company. That's for darn sure. But the other interesting thing about that is we've had some great vendors. I told you before, like they'll give us like 120 days of credit and things like that. And what we're trying to do is kind of ease our way with those guys and really paying them down. So maybe we're taking it from 120 days down to 60 days to them. They don't charge us any interest on it, but it just makes us a better customer when the downturn comes. And so 
If we need some price concessions along the way, they say, hey, look, we'd rather pay the guys who pay us than the guys that don't pay us. So we're very cognizant of paying those guys down almost to get to ourselves to zero debt. We really have filled in the hole and now we're starting to build a little mount. And that's been great. It's a great feeling here. Because we work with open book management, that's also, even though people here say, hey, I don't want to hire anybody, I'll do some extra work. If you're going to hire someone for $50,000, you can pay me $10,000 and I'll do that extra work. And so there's a little bit of pressure for raising wages and things like that around here as well. It doesn't all fall to the bottom line. So I guess, have we gone, reached the end of the timeline? I didn't know if, if we have. And if so, is there any last words of wisdom you want to leave everyone with if we have? As far as the timeline goes, we can continue talking. It depends if, if you think I'm interesting or not. Go ahead. I thought we were at 2018 or 2019. You go ahead. We are, but then I can just talk about kind of where we're at today. Okay, that's fine. And a few other things. I just want to kind of impart a few words of wisdom to the wannabe entrepreneurs that are out there. We're doing really well in a very, very niche area. And I think that's what really helped us to we became experts in what we do in the fuses and circuit breakers. Uh, by the way, Vortex is still around, but it's less than a million dollars a year in revenue to us. It's almost all off-diffused today. And that was your initial company, just um, everyone for remember, that was a while ago since we talked about it. Exactly. It's still there on the peripheral. I think it has about 10 customers and that's about it that do some work with us. But we're really excited. I'll finish one before I go into the other one. So I tell people, I give this example to them all the time, uh, young people, especially want to be entrepreneurs. If you're in China, if you had an attribute that you can do that only one in one million people can do, maybe you can touch your tongue to your ear or something like this. Only one in one million people can do it. That means there's only 1,300 other people like you in China. And in the world, there's 7,000 people just like you. When I hear a lot of these books and speakers and say, all you need to do to become the next Uber or the, or the next Airbnb or the next Salesforce force.com or you name whatever unicorn you want out there. Optifuse. <laughs> well, we're not. We're different because the difference is that we're not trying to serve everyone. And we have a very niche that we do really, really, really well in. And so the idea is if you can find a product or a service that can only service one in one million people out there in the world, you have 7,000 customers that can come back to you and buy something from you and you, or you can service and you can create a product or a service for them. And they will be beholden to you because you can solve their problem that only one, one million people have. And so you don't have to be the next Uber or Airbnb, or you don't have to be big. You can be really relatively small and be very, very focused in a small niche and help those people out and become the best at whatever you do. And people will always find you if you're the best at what you do and without having to try and do a little bit for everyone, because then you never get really good at anything. You just become super big and cumbersome and you don't make any money like Uber. And they're still trying to figure out who they are one time or another. So I would just kind of like to impart a little bit of that information to the entrepreneurs out there who want to become entrepreneurs. And then the other thing I would say- And just to summarize it, that's just to stay in and don't worry about getting in a small enough niche, like it's all right to be in a small niche. Is that what you're just summarizing? Exactly. In fact, I encourage you to be in a small right. niche. Yeah. I encourage you to do something really, really good, but don't try to do it for everybody. If you're going to open a restaurant or don't do it like everybody else, don't try to be the next McDonald's, try to be the best restaurant you can to make the best recipes and to really give your diners a great service and that they'll remember you forever and come back forever. And then you'll have people out the door trying to get a seat in your restaurant. If you try to water it down and try to do what everybody else does, it's not going to work. There's just too much competition out there. So that was the other thing. And then the other thing that I see, and my son included, who's an entrepreneur as well, is that they want to go right from school, high school, college, whatever it is, right into some sort of entrepreneur gig without really having any kind of training outside of that. You worked in commercial real estate in a corporation. I worked in a corporation. 
we're looking around for that niche while we're actually doing something. And it's one thing to become an entrepreneur, but it's another thing just to sit around waiting for that idea to arise and you're just kind of working on four or five different little projects all the time. It might work, but the reality is you actually go out and get some training and you find some company that you can work with that would utilize some of your talents. There's nothing that says you have to leave college and go start your own software company or app company or whatever it happens to be, a restaurant or something. Go work for a great chef and see how restaurants run, not just from being a waiter, but actually having three or four or five positions within that restaurant and then go open up your own restaurant. Figure out how you sell software and apps and how you interface with customers and how you find customers and how you deal with other people on your team before you go and try to open up your own software development company. I think too many of the kids nowadays see this as their ticket because they see all these great IPOs and these unicorns on Wall Street. And the fact of the matter is those are the guys who won the lottery. But if you want to really go and do something, I encourage entrepreneurism like you can't believe, but to be prepared and actually go out there and learn something and learn the skills it's going to take and also be able to build your network. So some of the place, people that I met when I was working for those big companies were some of my biggest supporters when I started my own business. And I think it's important because obviously you were in a Fuse company before you started OptiFuse, right? And being in that industry. And initially I worked for a bigger commercial real estate company before I started my own commercial real estate company. So I think our two stories right there, it does help. Even if it was a shitty job, you learn how to not to be a shitty boss, right? Or like the things that you didn't like about people and stuff, but coming out of college and starting your company right away, I guess, yeah, some can do it, but the majority, it's better to get at least some experience. Even if you have a bad boss, you can learn from a bad boss that, hey, I don't want to be like a bad boss. <laughs> so. Exactly. So anyway, those are just the two little things I would impart because a lot of entrepreneurs might be listening to this and or want to be entrepreneurs might be listening to this podcast. And those are the two pieces of advice I would have for anybody out there thinking about opening up or hanging their own shingle out there on the wall. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. I think we've got a lot of stuff from it. And again, if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview or again, apply for the job, what's the best way for them to reach you via email? What is it again? Uh, Jim K, J-I-M-K at Optifuse.com. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on, Jim. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. you know someone who would be an awesome guest to have on the show? If you do, then send us an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. We're always looking for smart, beautiful entrepreneurs who are willing to share their story. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode, so don't be scared to get creative. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. 